0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the misty mountain hop? Where is the the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today?
2: a test, this is rock and roll!
3: Kurt Vile went from forklift driver to becoming one of the most talked about voices in indie rock. I'm Greg
4: Cott from the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim Duragatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Kurt Weil is in the Sound Opinion studio to perform songs from his new album, Waken on a Pretty Days. Later, we'll review the new album from the French dance pop act Phoenix, and Greg will drop a quarter in the Desert Island Jukebox you are listening to sound opinions and now
3: it's time for some music news
4: Greg, those, of course, are the immortal strains of Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, the 1939 song from uh, The Wizard of Oz sung by the cast of that film. There was a uh, really strong social networking campaign to make that song number one in the British pop charts last week to mark the death of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, whose funeral was just this week. Thatcher stirs emotions deeply in the UK. Many people will never forgive her war on the unions in that country, her invasion of the Falklands, her lack of concern in their eyes for poverty in the UK. They wanted to make a political statement. To the best of our knowledge, we racked our brains. We can't think of another case in pop history when people have tried to push a song to number one on the pop charts anywhere in order to make a political statement. Certainly, (laughs) the record industry has tried to push (laughs) plenty of songs to number one one with all sorts of nefarious behind-the-scenes machinations, but in terms of people banding together, spreading the word, it almost got to number one. It sold more than 52,000 copies on download of, of that song, but it was edged out by a few thousand copies by a pop song from Duke Dumont and A.M.E., Need You 100%. Nevertheless, at number two, there's a tradition in the UK of the BBC playing the top songs on the pop chart each week, counts them down like Casey Kasem used to do here in America. They felt, however, that they could not play Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead in its entirety because it was offensive as a political statement. So in the number two slot, instead of playing the whole song, they played a news report with a brief clip of the tune and a story about the controversy.
3: So Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, Jim, this is conjuring up all sorts of memories of the way the British pop charts were through much of the 80s during Thatcher's reign. British youth did not cotton very nicely to Margaret Thatcher, and they responded in musical voice. I think that Thatcher is the most name-checked political figure in rock era songwriting. The list of songs that came out of the UK in the 80s and 90s, name checking Thatcher, I mean, they are legion. We're talking about people like Elvis Costello with Tramp the Dirt Down. Crass had a song, How Does It Feel to Be the Mother of a Thousand Dead? Billy Bragg, of course, had to check in with Thatcherites. Your I will recline. Your doctrines I must blame. you will hear, you will hear. Your doctrines I must blame. you will hear. The beat, aka the English beat, Stand Down Margaret, one of their most famous songs, simply read, She'll have to go, directed directly at Margaret Thatcher saying, You're gonna have to go. Me. And then I think her number one nemesis in U.K. pop history, Morrissey, who has been on the trail even this week criticizing the coverage of Thatcher's funeral as being way too reverent for his taste. Who can forget Morrissey on one of his solo albums with a song entitled Margaret on the Guillotine. (laughs) The
0: kind people have a wonderful dream. Margaret Gillity Cause
4: people like you Make me feel so tired Greg, I think you're right. I think Maggie Thatcher's number one on the hit parade. But I'd like to ask our listeners, what is your favorite rock song about a political figure? Give us a call. 888 859 1800. When will you die? This is Sound Opinions, and you're hearing the song KV Crimes by our next guest, Kurt Vile. This Philadelphia artist has made a name for himself as a songwriter-songwriter in the tradition of Bruce Springsteen, John Fahey, or Neil Young, but he combines that with a less traditional sound, something more indie and lo-fi. Vile first broke through in 2008 as a member of the band The War on Drugs, and while his solo career hasn't made him a household name, it has earned him the respect of musical peers and a successful run on Matador Records. His latest is called Waken on a Pretty Days, and Kurt stopped by the studio on tour promoting the release. Tell us about how you got interested in music first. it Was the banjo your first instrument? Well, um, that was my first
5: string instrument. I played the trumpet in fourth grade. I got a banjo when I was 14 for my 14th birthday. I did want a guitar, but uh, he gave me a banjo and I just... I guess I did learn some of the picking patterns with lessons at first, but I pretty much quickly just brought in cassette tapes for me. Uh, you know, my banjo teacher to teach me. Um, you know, smoke on the water fi- on banjo or no, what? No, it's like well, there was some. I mean, if you want to go classic rock, there was like some credence, but there was also like pavement tapes or something. You know what I mean? I was always in, into music. I was just, it just, I was drawn to it. Uh, but my dad, yeah, he was playing lots of old time and bluegrass music like over and over again in the car like a lot of doc watson and Flatt and Scruggs and uh ralph stanley and i i guess i i didn't necessarily love it or think i did when i was younger you know because you never want to really like your dad's music but i'm lucky because i heard that stuff over and over again so like that's sort of like a roots music is in my dna at this point like embedded in my skull and all that
4: well, the thing that I think a lot of people who aren't musicians uh, forget about bluegrass is, man, you got to have chops to play that music. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot of interviews talking about this album, the new Elm, uh, where you, one of the things you wanted to do was really rise up your level of solos. I mean, playing guitar was important to you on this record
5: yeah well there were certain songs actually where I had like solos shredding solos written you know and I was like I was excited about that but also just looking back I was like oh wow there's lots of guitar solos you know Mm -hmm. I think this
4: first use ever on Sound Opinions of the sentence I had lots of shredding solos written (laughs) and I applaud that
3: (laughs) (laughs) the banjo has a lot of skill involved, as Jim was mentioning, and you are noted for not only the shredding, as you say, but also the finger-picking, and and I would imagine that informed that, that early apprenticeship on the banjo really translated into what you can do with an acoustic guitar, finger-picking-wise.
5: Yeah, I would say so. I was definitely taught the finger-picking early on, and, uh, but I did sort of want to relearn it once I got into, like, the Beatles White Album. A friend of mine taught me, like, and I got into John Fahey and stuff like that, and, uh, I sort of relearned the finger-picking guitar, but I would say about the banjo, it's it's definitely, yeah, the finger-picking, but also because you don't start with the the guitar, which is like, you know, a standard tuning on a guitar, you get stuck in the box where you just see things as a certain chord, like a C chord or a D chord, whereas the banjo is an open tuning, so like, you know, there are kind of less walls, like, the, there are, like, lots of endless possibilities.
3: Also, I, got, I get this image of, you know, were you one of those guys in the bedroom practicing seven hours a day? As soon as you got home from school, you're grabbing that, grabbing that instrument and playing, or Is that how you learned, learned to play, or did you have a teacher I, along I the only, way? I only had a, that,
5: a banjo teacher for like a year or something. You know, I've been playing for so long at this point, so now when I'm at home, I have two kids, and I've been playing long enough now where I pick up the guitar and it's pretty natural. But yeah, in the early days, I was just nonstop playing, you know.
3: We're here in the Jim and K. Maybe studio on Sound Opinions with Kurt Vile. And uh, Kurt, you've got a beautiful guitar on your hands. Uh, you want to play a song for us? Yeah,
5: sure. I'll play the, the lead track, on, uh, the first track on the album, Waking on a Pretty Day. Okay. <laughs>
6: Dawn of day. I gotta think about what I wanna say. Phone ringing off the shelf. I guess it wanted to kill him myself. Waking on a pretty day. Don't know why I ever go away. It's hard. I say I've been most all around But honey, I ain't going nowhere Don't worry about anything It's only dying I live along a straight line Nothing always comes to mind Why is crack, gonna drop along the way today. Phone ringing off the shelf. I guess somebody has something they really wanna prove to us today.
3: on a pretty day performed by kurt vile live on sound opinions coming up after the break on sound opinions from wbez chicago and prx more music and discussion with kurt vile then later in the show jim and i review the new album from former sound opinions guests phoenix Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim Dirigatis, and our guest this week is Kurt Vile. Kurt's a student of rock history. He incorporates many different influences into his style of music, the traditional rock storytelling of Neil Young and John Fahey with crude, fuzzed-out lo-fi production. But being a good student, Kurt's also aware of the idea of rock mythology. So we return to our conversation there with his own rock myth. It's It's interesting to me how people like to build mythologies around artists. And I know you're a big fan of rock biographies, so you probably have seen this happen, too, where a story takes on a certain life of its own, where it becomes almost larger than life, and it begins to define the artist. And your story is, man, he spent two years working on this forklift, and he came, he came out of that experience a changed man. It was like Robert Johnson going to the crossroads and meeting the devil, or something <laughs> yeah. like that, you know. Yeah. Where does that fit in your, you know, in your well, personal mythology? You
5: well, know? the the forklift thing was like that was, I guess, my first legit job, and it happened to be the blue collar ball busting job at that. But it was <laughs> like at a. When all my friends had about graduated college, or maybe they were there for one more year, I never went to college because I always knew I wanted to play music. I move up to Boston with my—well, was my girlfriend there then. She's my wife now, and she, you know, was getting her master's up at Emerson. And I was—through a friend of hers, her husband, he just got me this job at this total, like, terrible, like, warehouse. And I worked in—it was like my reality check— like unloading tractor trailers for two years and stuff, and I, I when I moved back to Philly, I said I would never do it again. But I, you know, I made a lot of money. I bought all my recording gear and stuff like that. I played a lot of guitar in Boston, so maybe that's sort of part of the mythology of me not knowing that many people and playing all the time. And, and that from like 2003 to 2000 what 2009, I worked at a brewery, which was a way better job. But they happened to have a forklift there. But it was like it was like <laughs> I I was a, clearly the best forklift driver. By, by millions of miles, you know. So I would, it would be like a break. It was like, oh, Kurt, we need you on the forklift. I'm like, yeah, because, you know, I was, like, I was the master by then. But it, wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> Forklift King. It was only two years of, like, really hard, back-breaking, you know, reality check.
3: There's this great songwriter out of Texas named Butch Hancock, and he said that there was a period in his life where he was basically in that hot Texas sun on an tractor, basically plowing these fields. And they said that must have been the worst job ever. And he says in some ways it was, but it was so monotonous that I was able to go off into my own head. I didn't even need drugs. It became almost like a drug in itself, having that much time alone. All these great ideas for songs started coming into my head, and I came out of that period with a whole bunch of great songs. No,
5: that's totally true, and every job I've had had to be monotonous in one way or another, whether it be landscaping, but at the brewery, yeah, I would just make boxes wrote many albums
3: (laughs) (laughs) you're putting out these home recordings you make the step into a a more official type of uh, release schedule I mean was it always your ambition to get the music on a a sort of a wider platform you know have a a real quote-unquote label pick up your music and and be able to make a living off of it I mean did you ever did you always have that vision or was it something you just sort of walked into most definitely
5: I make the analogy that my climb towards, towards success is like climbing up the slowest ladder ever, like one little step at a time, <laughs> but like, I'm like totally obsessive and plotting in my head all the time. <laughs> right now, I'm more, more just sitting sitting back. You know, I Wait, were you it.
3: shooting for Matador Records from the get-go? Uh, Matador, I, I thought that was the best of all the indie labels. You'd been doing that for a while, and, and obviously patience must have been a huge part of it. And I know you'd built up quite a following because of that thing called the Internet. There was a lot of people that had access to your music through through those channels. And when you came out with Smoke Ring for My Halo in 2011, some of the response was, oh, my God, he's gone professional. <laughs> it sounds too good. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a brilliant record, obviously. But at the same time, there was there was that faction of fans who had been sort of consuming your music for years that, you know, oh, come on, man, he's sold out. Yeah,
5: no, totally. I mean, that's, that's just the. Well, partly the coming out of the whole lo-fi scene thing and, like, there's always those people, the hipster types that... Um, or they just might not genuinely like like it, and that's fine. I mean, I have tons of friends who just, like, write like really obscure music that's, like, a, a really cool minority, you know, thing. But I, ultimately, I would like to make a record the quality of, like the people like from the 70s, like Neil Young or whoever, you know, like there was no other option really back then. And like now there's so many different styles to choose from.
4: Well, correct me if I'm wrong, Kurt, but it seems like you were almost sneering at or poking in the eye those hipsters who would say you sold out with the last record. You gave a bunch of interviews that your goal was to remake Fleetwood Mac's Tusk. Oh, yeah. (laughs) With all rock and no cheese. Yeah, yeah. What did you mean? I just meant... Tusk is obviously a great record, and obviously I would you know, debate you
5: on that. But. Okay, well that's fine. That's fine. There you go. <laughs> I like it. I Greg think, loves do, it. do you Greg think loves it's it. che- well? Do you think it's cheesy with the USC marching band? man? Come yeah. on, baby, let's <laughs> take a stroll. Just remember that love is gold. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like you know that's the cheese and like, super cheese. You know, like production-wise, it's a fact that, that that's like a people go nuts for like the weird stuff they did on that record, and they just. They did a lot of it on their own, they tr- experimented. I just meant in that, in that way yeah. that we got really deep into the whole production and didn't go by any rules, per se. double album that's the other part and then yeah but it just rocks and there's no cheesy parts you
1: know? <laughs> you're
4: on your record yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah there's also no like mountains of cocaine and 17 grand pianos and all the excesses of that album that's debatable no I'm just kidding <laughs> you're right don't
3: assume too much
4: <laughs> well how about another tune give us, give us one from this cocaine epic No, oh, come on
5: that, it's, uh, this is just pop song Check check You
6: had it on my day. Each morning we marry It's just some most gorgeous days I know you'll never run away You met a young man Who was a wild child You harmonized his cheese And his drawing mind. mine Saxophones sing From inside his head crying I know you'll never run away I know you'll never run away You'll never run away I know you'll never Run away I'm living all the time Thanks cause you're mine my dying days away. Each day we carry on like believers and lovers, though there are others who would rather run away. Now, if you want to hear me sing, press play. Amen. Pay close attention. I know you'll never run away 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 away. I'm holding you all night through to the dawn You turn my dying days away my steady diet up I love them taking dope to cope after come down sometime eh 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 now eh 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 man pay E-e-e-e-e- eh close attention eh 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 now I know you're
3: away from Kurt Vile on Sound Opinions. That's from the new album, Waking On A Pretty Day's. Kurt, the record, as Jim mentioned earlier, has got some epic qualities to it. The songs are kind of uh, you know, stretched out in, in many cases. That's one of the more concise songs. Okay. And also there are uh, friends or people that you've admired on the record. I, I know that there's members of Beachwood Sparks and Warpaint and Royal Trucks. How did you kind of conceive of, of getting these other musicians on the record?
5: Mainly, I guess, because I plan to go over to the west coast and go farmer dave stella from war paint emily from war paint and and then jennifer as well happened to be over in the west coast and uh pretend you're like a in the Hotel California book, for a second, but, uh, <laughs> it's that
3: um, uh, it's that Fleetwood Mac vibe you were looking for, right? Yeah,
5: Fleetwood Mac, <laughs> Neil Young, whatever, and Birds. and that all, Barney Hoskins
4: uh, Eagles biography uh, Hotel California. You, th- a lot of people have mentioned that being by your side when they've interviewed you recently.
5: Yeah, well, that's you know, I I read that a, a ways back, and I mean, I love Neil Young and all you know, the different eras of Fleetwood Mac, and uh, you know, and I don't really like the Eagles, but
3: you know, well, it sounds like a lot of these songs are kind of. They could have been. They could have gone on for thirty minutes, and it was like an editing process. Maybe at the end to, to figure out what went on the record. How did how did these songs sort of get written in that environment, that uh, Hotel California environment that you were yeah, setting up Yeah, depending for on
5: the song, like very sort of a California Hotel California vibes. I guess it's kind of hard to answer exactly your question, but like it's just kind of funny because then you go to the Philly and you like overdub stuff and then you get you get the Philly edge and then you go to New York <laughs> and then you get to New York you get the you get the velvet underground, I don't know, spirit or something. So it's it's all it's all meshed in there. It's not too much of anything. It's too much of everything, maybe.
4: <laughs> no, it's <that's> great. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the tusk comparison. Yes, there you go. <laughs> well in addition to lo fi, the other word that people keep throwing around is songwriter, songwriter, songwriter. And people starting to say you know, one of the best songwriters of his generation and stuff like this about Kurt Vile. So I guess what we're interested in, Kurt, is is that transformation. You know, when they start out at home, after you put the girls to bed, (laughs) you know, and you're working on something, how long does it take you to get it into the form that you're happy with on acoustic guitar? And then how does it grow when you have other friends like those that played on this new record?
5: When you're younger, you know, you think there's all these rules and I would write a song and and obsessively write it. There's nuances in pretty much all my songs, so you can be playing the same song for, you know, a week straight on your couch, like, filling every nook and cranny with, like, some special riff so somebody can't play it exactly like you or something. And, like, the more you play, the better you get a guitar, but the more you you understand that, uh, like, a recording is just like a snapshot. It just happened to sound that way that time. So with that in mind, and you just kind of get lost in it.
4: as you were saying that the entire time you're fingering different chords on the neck it's just clearly you're just living with this all the time and it's always evolving what about as a lyricist people say you know these are really personal songs but it also seems to me that some critics sometimes have no idea what you're talking about yeah (laughs) yeah I mean
5: I mean they come from you know just inspiration in general I listen to tons of music so there's all just life experience but like not so literal really just kind of just just having an open an open mind and just always being introspective it just obviously it's just a craft you're fine tuning that's lyrics I don't know you know it's every it's everything it's just listening to music and reading and but the whole time trying to be sincere and you know I think this record is just definitely comfortable and definitely me they all mean something to me and they all it's not like a bunch of just rhymes for the sake of it it's definitely like Evolved into just my life.
4: Well, how about another song, Kurt? Okay, tell us, tell us where this one came from and how it started. Since we're talking about songwriting, this song is—I'm going to tune it
5: up while I. Um, this song is "Baby's Arms," which is the first song on the. Is that okay to play an
1: old? Sure, Absolutely. absolutely.
6: Si you know is I implied. I get sick of just about everyone, in I hide my baby's arms, shrink myself just like a tom thumb, and I hide my baby's hands, I hide my baby's hands, cause except for her, there just ain't nothing to latch on to.
4: Baby's Arms on Sound Opinions. Kurt, it's a beautiful tune. Thank you. We have had
3: Kurt Vile on Sound Opinions here today. It's been a pleasure, Kurt. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much.
4: To hear all the songs and watch video from today's interview with Kurt Vile, go to soundopinions.org. Got a comment on today's show or anything else in the world of music? give us a call at 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we review the new album from the dance pop band Phoenix, and it's Greg's turn to drop a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is a song called Entertainment, which kicks off album number five from Phoenix called Bankrupt. With the exclamation point, Greg. I love titles with (laughs) exclamation points. Phoenix didn't really break big in the United States until 2009 with that album Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix. Touring in support of that, they were guests on Sound Opinions, but the history goes back to the late 90s when Thomas Mars, bored in the idyllic city of Versailles outside of Paris, puts together a band to do weird punk rock versions of songs by Hank Williams and Prince. They made their proper debut in 2000 on the great Astral Works label, released follow-up albums in 2004 and 2006, were garnering a lot of respect in France. At one point, they were the backing band on tour for the French duo Air. They also worked with Thomas Bangalter of Daft Punk, but as I said, did not break big in the States until 2009 with those wonderful singles from Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, Listomania and 1901. Can they top that breakthrough with their new release? Thomas Mars has said that the album was inspired in large part by his wife's film, Somewhere, which uh, was released in 2010. He's married to Sofia Coppola, the American director. Let's hear a song from Bankrupt, and we'll come back and give our opinion. This is Bourgeois by Phoenix on Sound Opinions.
3: That is Bourgeois from Phoenix and their fifth studio album, Bankrupt. Jim, you mentioned the movie Somewhere, directed by Thomas Marr's wife, Sofia Coppola. And I do think there are a lot of reference points to that movie in this album. You know, the movie's about this rich, famous young actor. He's holed up in this Hollywood luxury, and he has absolutely emotionally vacuous type of lifestyle. Yeah. And I think this album, in some ways, is a commentary on that sort of emotional void that people have in their lives. You know, there's a lot of references to Hollywood and that whole California scene in this album. You know, they talked about making a more experimental album, and a lot of people are hearing some of the singles on this record, and they are going, what, what's experimental about this? It sounds like part two of Wolfgang Amadeus' Phoenix. I would say the singles on this record are not nearly as strong as the best moments on that record, but as an album, I think it's a stronger piece of work. You know, you have that mid-album palate cleanser, much like the last album had Love Like Sunset Part 1, this album has the title song, and that sort of separates the album. you sort of got the upbeat, more dancey tracks up top, and then you've got the more atmospheric, synthy stuff at, at the bottom of the record. There's a lot more synthesizer on this record, a lot less guitar. There's also some interesting touches here musically, where they're sort of approximating R&B on some of these tracks. I think it works overall. I don't think it's as strong as Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, that in retrospect is a career high point. But this is a pretty good record, and
4: I would say it's a buy record for me. It's a complicated record, Greg, because you're right. They are making fun of the bourgeois lifestyle or sneering at it. Bourgeois, why would you care for more? They give you almost everything. You believed almost anything. We would think that Thomas Marr and his wife, Sophia Coppola, are against that, right? I mean, she made the movie about Marie Antoinette off with their heads, right, (laughs) in Versailles where this guy grew up. And yet here they are with a new fascination for R. Kelly appearing with him on stage at Coachella, a very controversial presence in American R&B that would seem to be the antithesis of what they're saying in their lyrics. I think that Phoenix is a little bit confused right now between the synthesizer mood pieces and the more dance-oriented, very R&B pieces, but my biggest complaint at the end of the day is there just ain't a song as good as 1901 or Listomania here. It's not killing me the way that Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix did, so I have to give it a burn-it. I tell you,
7: little buddy, this whole island is bewitched.
0: Remember, we were shipwrecked together.
4: As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and play you a song we can't live without. It is Greg Cott's turn this week. He has built himself a replica of the Contiki raft and he is paddling now to the desert island.
3: Yes I am Jim and I'm paddling towards uh, Shuggie Otis. A lot of his music uh, being reissued these days. He's on tour for the first time in years. It's a great event for people who love those uh, records that he came out with in the early 70s. And I'm gonna reference some of them. Who is Shuggie Otis? He was the son of famed R&B band leader Johnny Otis and at the age of 15 Shuggie was already a guitar prodigy. What's fascinating about this you know he could have forged an incredible career I think just doing that But he quickly shifted gears into more atmospheric terrain right after that. People like Al Cooper were championing him. Frank Zappa played with him. People could see that this guy had sort of a visionary approach to guitar playing, to arranging, to the studio. Unfortunately, he pretty much dropped out of sight after making a couple of albums. By the mid-'70s and by his mid-'20s, he was pretty much gone from the mainstream music scene. But the music he left behind during that era has now come back into vogue thanks to a a lot of hip-hop artists sampling it, and now Shuggy is back with a tour, reissues, It's a good thing for Shuggy Otis. The track I'm going to play is from 1971. Now, remember, this guy was only 18 years old Mm. when this track was made. It's called Strawberry Letter 23. Some people may remember it was a big hit for a group called the Brothers Johnson in the late 70s who are big fans of this guy. But I think the original version by Shuggy is the one to own. He plays basically all the instruments himself. There's a glockenspiel on here, you know, (laughs) which kind of adds this psychedelic tinge. And there's also a very psychedelic feel. To the vocals, topped off by this guitar solo that sounds like it was lifted from an early Yes album. I, I can't even describe it in terms of musical niche, because there's references to classical music here, avant-garde, progressive rock, Shuggy Otis, a very individual sound on this particular song. Strawberry Letter 23 from Shuggy Otis on Sound Opinions.
0: Hello, my love, I heard just from you. The sun doesn't shine
4: Shuggy Otis with Strawberry Letter 23, Greg Cott's Desert Island jukebox pick for the week. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to look back at the life and legacy and the music of Nick Drake. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Mary Gaffney recorded our session with Kurt Vile. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff, And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori southside Malatia. he was fired from his gig as a forklift driver. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
2: New messages.
7: Hi, guys. This is Dan Dubke calling from Chicago, Illinois. I just finished listening to your Grand Slam show, which listed bands who made four great albums in a row. And I thought I'd add a Grand Slam pick that most consider just a triple. The consensus seems to be that the replacements made three great albums in a row with Let It Be, Kim, and Please to Meet Me. But I maintain that their next album, Don't Tell a Soul, is criminally underrated in their canon. Sure, it suffers from the requisite 1980s major label overproduction, but from a songwriting standpoint, every song in the album holds up as well as the rest of the Mads output. I've loved that album for years, and I hate to see it rejected because people can't get past some cheesy drum reverb. Keep up the good work, guys. Thanks. Hey, guys, this is Mike Woodard from Durham, North Carolina. I wanted to call and congratulate you on a great show with the Grand Slams. You forbade us from using the Stones and the Beatles, but outside of that, I had thought of two more. I think Joni Mitchell's run from 69 to 74 that started with Clouds and ended up with Court and Spark was really important and really set the tone for the singer-songwriter era. Help
0: me, I think I'm falling in love
8: too fast It's got me hoping for the future and worrying about the past Cause I've seen some hard, hot places come down to
7: My other Grand Slam Plus One is also from that same period and had uh, influence on a lot of those folks, too, and that's Van Morrison's run from 68 to 72. It started with Astral Weeks and went through Moondance all the way up to St. Dominic's Preview. Keep up the great work, and I'll keep listening.
1: As we gaze out on,
0: as we gaze out on,
1: Guess
2: I yeah. Saint Gentlemen, this is David from Nashville. I just listened on the radio to your Roger Ebert episode. It allowed me to revisit an issue that I took issue with the first time, and that is this consensus that you guys all seem to have about the quality of The Last Waltz movie. Now, I know why Levon. Doesn't like it, and that's totally legitimate. Robbie Robinson wanted to overdub everything. Ramon Scorsese made Robbie look like the boss, etc., etc. But, boy, the quality of the musical performances on that movie, I don't know what you guys are talking about. Everyone looks glum and miserable. The performances by Dylan and Van Morrison and Levon himself singing The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down is widely considered one of the most emotional musical vocal performances put to uh, tape. Him singing that, knowing us the last time he's going to be singing with those guys, and it was. I've been watching that movie for over 20 years, and every time I put it on, I'm just so thrilled and excited by the quality of the music in that movie. So, I don't know what that's about. Thank you. No more messages.
3: To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more sound opinions produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.